So if you're here this morning and you feel weak, he sympathizes with us. He is our strength. He's our help. As we sit here, some of us feeling confused, some of us just struggling with sin, struggling to believe, struggling with distraction. He is sympathetic and wants to help us. So let's go to him in prayer as we begin our time. Our Father in heaven, we come before you um, asking you to put our eyes on Jesus. Father, we're so thankful for the good news. We're thankful that you've given us these means to come and cling to him with little faith, with little confidence, but knowing that you have us and you will never let us go. And so in this moment, would you please hold us and show us Christ as we look to your word to study it, to be strengthened. And we trust you to do this, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I am so sorry. I'm not sure where to put this thing, but we'll get over that. Hopefully. We need help in many ways. Um, so it's more of a distraction to me maybe than yeah so if you want to go ahead and flip to Nahum uh, you can go ahead and do that and uh, we'll read that in just a moment but yeah I was talking to my neighbor the other day and telling him he's also in ministry and I was telling him that um, I was preaching through the book of Nahum all about judgment and the vengeance of God and his face was like you know it says it all because like we were talking about last week we just, it, it does not feel right when we look and see this, this God who destroys territories and who has vengeance on people. Like, we just think it's so uncalled for when we think about the judgment and the, the severity of God. And we assume this posture where God needs to explain himself, where we become judges of God's judgment. All right, I see that you've done this, but you need to explain why it was a good idea. Should we fix this? Yeah. Yeah. I think it may just be. I think I'm just breathing so hard. Yeah, yeah, let's turn it up just a minute. All right. So there that is. Take a little moment, we'll restart. His truth remains no matter how fickle and frail we are and how distracted we are. So we, we just pray that he would take his truth and continue to, to strengthen us. As the audio changes, he never does. Anyway, so we, we assume this posture where we're judging God's judgment and asking him to explain himself. Who do we think we are, honestly, though? Why, why do we think that that is okay for us, knowing that he's our creator? We're human. We're fickle. We don't understand his goodness. We, we, we don't get it, right? God's judgment is severe, and it will never not be that way. It's the judgment of a holy God. It is severe. So we shouldn't try to study judgment to make it less severe. Because the irony is when we study the judgment and the severity of God, the way he reveals it, it will lead us to Christ. We will take his judgment, change it, create a God of our own, and go straight to hell. So we want 
to study his judgment as he's revealed it to us. And that's what we're going to do today. Last week, we looked at how God is good and how his justice is a comfort to those who take refuge in him. And we considered that in the first seven verses of chapter one. And it's only in Christ, the rock of ages, that God can be a refuge for sinners. And we looked into what it means that God is our refuge. And this morning in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 1, we're going to dive deeper into the results of God's goodness and then further understand how his judgment is a comfort to us. So if you are in the book of Nahum, the prophet, we're going to start in, I'm going to start reading at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are full strength, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And I now will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the card carved image and metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Praise be to God for his word. And we're just gonna work through the verses and then reflect. So starting in verse 7, which we considered last week, I just want to remind us as we head into verses 8 through 17 that God is good. And there I say that there's nothing more characteristic of God than his goodness. And because he is good, he punishes evil, and he makes right the things that are wrong. He has no reason at all that he should have placed his favor upon Israel or any of us. But in goodness, he has acted with mercy. So although he is armed with wrath, which is stored up for his enemies, he has promised many things to his church, his people of all time, and has been faithful to keep his promises, and he will continue to be faithful in keeping his promises. With the goodness of God in mind, we're now going to look to the rest of our verses to more intensely observe the results of God's goodness. And so number one, we're going to consider a few verses under this heading, the result of God's goodness is the absolute end of all his people's enemies. The result of God's goodness is the absolute end of all his people's enemies. And this is found in verses 8 through 11 and verse 14. And looking at verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. And if you remember, if you put your eyes on verse 3 and 4, where it talks about his 
His ways are in a whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the seas. The, the creation itself is literally thrown into confusion when he acts. He splits seas. He destroys. I mean, it's in confusion, and he says that he is going to make a complete end. His power overcomes the entire world. There's nothing that's going to stop him from doing this. He is able to save his people from trouble. And just a side note, Justin mentioned this in in uh, while he was leading us in this service, reminder about Israel and Nineveh. As a result of Solomon's sin, right, Israel split, splits into two nations, the people of God. You got the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was progressively getting worse, just faster and faster. And so the Lord allows Assyria to overtake them. And so this giant empire who's just known for, for killing and abusing and, and just exploiting humans and territories for every lustful you know, reason. That's this huge empire that Judah is now in the shadows of. And if you remember, Jonah preached the truth to Nineveh. They repented, and now they've become godless again. They've become idolatrous. They've been expanding their empire, everything I just said. But God will not let Judah be overtaken. And he has decided that he will judge. This is what Nahum is communicating to us. And so when God, judges, when God judges, he will surround them, he'll overtake them, and he'll swallow them up and destroy them, verse 8, with an overflowing flood, this imagery of, of a flood just swallowing up buildings and, and nations, and, uh, if, or if you picture a flood, just swallowing up buildings, and into the darkness at the end of verse 8. And the, the imagery is honestly really beautiful in terms of, of how bad judgment is in thinking about this flood overtaking and then pursuing them into darkness. If you think about just being dropped in the middle of the deepest parts of the ocean and dropped to the very bottom, there is no finding your body. You know, it's just, it's darkness. You're gone forever. There, there's nothing good. You're disintegrated into darkness. The Lord's saying, I will pursue them with an overflowing flood into darkness. Moving into verse 9, he says, what do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time. Nahum is like, Nineveh, don't think you can stop him. Because your war is not with mere, mere mortals. It's with the living God. It's with the creator of the universe. And when it seems good to God, he's going to pour out his wrath. And he won't have to do it a second time. There's going to be no opportunity to, to regroup and, and collect yourselves and, and, and come back stronger than ever. No, no chance. He's going to destroy his enemies at the proper time. And you presume upon his patience, Nineveh. You think that he's weak or not real. You, you take him lightly as you repented, but now have no fear of him anymore. But you're not going to recover from his judgment. He's going to make a complete end of your place. Moving into verse 10, for they are like entangled thorns, Nahum says like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Have you ever, you know, been playing Frisbee in the yard? Or I mean, I feel like in my life this happens when I'm playing ball because you either overthrow it and it goes into the woods, into a place where it's like, I really don't want to go chase. I mean, there's thorns everywhere. You got to crawl through the bushes or try to reach. And you either have to go get another ball or fight for your life to get through these thorn bushes. That's almost impossible to get through. Like this is kind of, 
this imagery of where it's just tangled together. And no matter how careful, careful you are at getting that thing, you're going to get bit. You're going to come out with bloody pants and holes in your khakis and whatever else. And so what he's saying in verse 10 is that no matter how vicious or poisonous they think that they are, no matter how, how you know, nobody's going to touch that thorn bush. It's, it's just too much. No matter how powerful you think you are, like a thorn bush, full of warriors you may be, the Lord is going to destroy you. He says you're like a drunkard as you drink, increasingly more puffed up as they drink and they get drunk and they're full of pride and trash talk. You become confident, full of swag, full of audacity, but they're drinking their poison because as they drink, one single push, would, would, they would fall over tumbling. They would pass out with one little push as this drink makes them prideful, and they're just full of their own lust, full of their own pride, thinking they're big and bad. They aren't weak in the eyes of man, though. That's the thing. But in the eyes of God, the strongest world power is like a drunk man. They're going to be consumed like the end of verse 10. Like fully dried stubble. Have you ever let your Christmas, if you get real Christmas trees, you let them dry out, set them on fire, and it's just gone. Or throw in like dead leaves on a fire. This is great. It just burns so quick and fast, and it lets the fire get even increasingly hot. Well, this is this imagery here, like fully dried stubble. I mean, as as vicious as you think you are, you're like dead leaves on a fire. It's just going to, because this is the, God of the universe, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we're talking about here. And I just think the imagery is beautiful in terms of God's judgment and his power. In verse 11, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. It tells us that God cares for his people and he's their protector. And so thinking about what we read today in Isaiah, Sennacherib rises up, tries to attack Jerusalem. It didn't go well. As a matter of fact, God said he was going to put a hook in his mouth and turn him on his way. His sons killed him in the house of his gods. The Lord was faithful. You're not going to do it. They didn't do it. And he was destroyed. And this is what he's saying. There was one who plotted evil against you. Remember Sennacherib? Just like him, I will do to all of Nineveh. And how sure would this make Judah as they're hearing Nahum describe these words of God? How confident and hopeful Judah could be because God told them, you're mine. I love you. I'm jealous for you. And because this Nineveh threatens to destroy you, I'm going to destroy them. He's not just crushing evil because it's the kind thing to do. He's not just doing what's friendly in this just, just, uh, economy of, just, of justice. He's not just doing what's good for the oppressed. No, because he is good and because he's decided to love his people, he is going to destroy his enemies. He's going to destroy their enemies. And now the prophet declares to Nineveh what the Lord says to them. In verses 14, we're jumping down because I, I see these going together, talking about judgment. Verse 14 says, the Lord has given commandment about you, and here he's talking to Nineveh, no matter 
No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make a grave for you are vile. There will be no descendants to bear your name. When I'm done with you, there will be no history of you. No one will carry your name. Your legacy will not live on. Your legacy will be how this powerful nation was destroyed by a holy God. Think about Sennacherib's murder. Such a powerful king he was to do so much evil and to lead this giant city into just becoming bigger and faster and stronger. And in his own house, of, in his own house of gods, dead. Who's going to protect you when the holy God of the universe says he's coming to judge? Clearly the most powerful empire's king couldn't protect himself. Saying that you are vile is this imagery of God has weighed you out and you've proved to be absolutely abominable. And therefore, he's going to act. You are vile. See, he did relent, right? Was it because Nineveh, when when Jonah came to preach, that they were just all of a sudden became perfect and pure? Absolutely not. But we're talking about a different economy where people, you're, you're having equity and God is using nations to bring about redemption. And these people have gone off the rails. They decide that they're bigger and better than God and could care less about who he is or what he thinks he's going to do. And God has decided to judge because they've become abominable. They have no fear of God. And not only that, but what we just stated, God's Messiah is coming from Judah, which leads us to the second heading that we're going to consider the rest of the verses we didn't cover. The result of God's goodness is mercy and faithfulness to his people. Is mercy and faithfulness to his people. So we just considered how the result of God's goodness is ab- the absolute end of all his enemies, of all of his people's enemies. And now we're going to look at how the result of his goodness is mercy and faithfulness to his people in verses 12 through 13 and verse 15. And so looking at verse 12, thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And here he's talking to Judah. Nahum is telling Judah what God has said. These words are from the Lord himself. God announces that, yes, he was using Assyria to chasten Judah, but he will allow the Assyrians to afflict them no longer. Which leads us right into verse 13. And now I will break his yoke from off you and I will burst your bonds apart. Never again would Assyria be Judah's affliction. The Assyrian yoke was only temporary. God was using that for his own purposes. And they've been in subjection to Assyria, but the Lord declares that he is now going to burst their bonds apart and Judah will be free from Assyrian affliction. Sounds exactly like Isaiah 52, verse 7, where which he is talking about, excuse me, I'm sorry about that. I misspoke there, but. The destruction of Nineveh is not some fatalistic, natural progression of history, right? It's proof that God's covenant love for his chosen people, that he will not let Judah be destroyed, and he will crush Nineveh. His enemies will be crushed. He's going to crush the yoke that he was using to discipline them. He's done with that now. He's moving on to other things. 
So Assyria, who has no fear, is going to be destroyed. And then we end up at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. For now, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. He's announcing the one who brings good news. This one who is coming is going to proclaim peace. And he's coming from the mountains. You see, for Judah, peace and, and war or freedom is not something that they could freely speak of. They're at the discretion of Nineveh. Lest they, you know, push too many buttons and Nineveh overtake them. So they're almost acting in, out of fear and they're not doing what God has told them to do. And so they, you know, they whisper these words together. But no, they're saying that this one, I mean, Nahum is saying this one who's coming, he's not under Nineveh's control. He's not afraid of Nineveh. He's coming from the mountains. And he's coming to proclaim peace. And he's coming to tell God's people that he reigns. But again, the northern tribes have fallen. Ten of the 12 tribes of Israel have literally just been disintegrated. And is God going to let the lights go out on salvation? What is going on? And honestly, I know that Nahum is proclaiming God's words. And yes, they are a comfort. But what is actually going to happen? When is this actually going to happen? And Nahum is telling him, the one who is bringing good news, who is announcing peace, he is coming. He's not chained up by Nineveh. And so he tells them to keep your feasts, O Judah, and remember your vows. And he's keeping your feasts and remember your vows. I mean, think about all the things that God has given his people, like the celebrations of Passover and, and many other feasts, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, all of these things. And then in Psalm 116, there's lots of references to these vows where, where God's people is, are declaring to God, we are your servants and we will worship you in your house, and we will be your people, and we will obey your laws because they're in awe of what God has done for them. And so he's telling them, keep your feast. Remember and celebrate all those things that pointed you to my promises to send one who would crush all your enemies and keep your vows. Be God's servant. Don't be afraid of Nineveh because your God has spoken. The Lord will act. And so although Nineveh has all but destroyed you and threatens you, Give your sacrifices of thanksgiving. Be his servants. Do not be afraid. Trusting God's promises, Judah is expecting the Messiah. Not just crushing Nineveh, right? All of these things they would do would point them to the greater promises. The Messiah would come. All of these things were given for that. But at the same time, Judah did expect a military leader to come and, 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 you know, rip them out of Nineveh's control and establish Israel again and make them a, a nice world power. They're expecting a powerful guardian to protect them from their earthly enemies and restore them to prominence. But this Messiah is actually coming to save them from their sins and secure for them eternal life. But they're expecting him to come with a crown and with earthly might and with status with a sword, with a shield, but he comes in humility and in grace, gentle and lowly, the Savior and the Lord of God. I mean, the Savior and Lord God is born. God's people, God's people's great hope has arrived. The snake crusher who would crush the enemies of God, Abraham's offspring, 
the beautiful feet that brings good news, that publishes peace and says to his people, your God reigns. Emmanuel, God with us. He saves us from our sin. He has not come to save us from all the sufferings that we face in this life and to, and to just take sin away from us and we live this pretty life. And No, he's come to die for us. He has been born, the king of glory left, his throne above, taken on weakness, identifying himself with us. And in every way we have failed to love God and to love people, to truly keep his law, he kept it. In every way that you've broken the law of God, the Lord Jesus never did, and he kept it for you. And then he died. The wrath of God, this wrath that we're speaking of here, that yes, it's for Nineveh, and it points to something greater, which we will talk about. This wrath was poured out on the Lord Jesus. He took it for you. He was forsaken by God as God turned his back on his son for you so that he would never leave you and never forsake you. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave, proving that he has crushed all of God's enemies. Sin, can ha- sin no longer has a sting. The law can no longer condemn you. The righteousness the law requires, fulfilled. The punishment that you deserve, Jesus took it. Death is the entryway into eternity. It's no longer going to hold you back. It's no longer something for us to fear. Because God's judgment is not for us. Because the Lord Jesus took it. Satan, not for us to worry about. His doom is sure. To Judah, Nahum proclaims, your God has not forsaken you. He is jealous for you. He stores up wrath for his enemies. And this prolonged judgment that you experience is due to his patience. It's due to his wisdom. It's due to his mercy, not a lack of power. The whole earth is thrown into confusion when God declares and decides to act. For you who trust his promises, he is your refuge in the day of trouble. He forgets not his own, and he has no enemies. He has no rivals. He has no equals. Our God is one, and there is none like him. So, oh yeah, Judah, keep your feasts. Remember your vows, because I'm going to pour out my wrath on Nineveh. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to save you. And, and here's the thing, brothers and sisters. He kept his word. God kept his word. And we're going to talk about this in coming weeks, but Nineveh was so destroyed, so disintegrated, that it wasn't until like the 1840s that archaeologists think maybe this is where it was. Maybe this is where it was. That's over 2,000 years later, and they're like, maybe Nineveh was here. The Lord did what he said, and we don't need to overlook that and act like, oh, that's coincidence. The Lord did what he said, and somehow history proves it because he means what he says, and he keeps his promises. It encourages me, and this leads us to our meditations. we got two meditations from our passage this morning that I want to conclude our time with. And number one is God's faithfulness and drawing straight lines. 
God's faithfulness and drawing straight lines. And I kind of do that, I guess, to be a little mysterious. I can only imagine what some of you guys are thinking. So I do want to say this could get a little bumpy, but I trust and I pray that this is going to be useful and helpful for us. It's no small matter that God keeps his word. What we just talked about, that's no small matter. And verse 14 was fulfilled. Verses 13 and verse 15, that the yoke would be broken off of them, that the one who brings peace, The yoke was broken off of Judah and the Christ came, both fulfilled. He kept his word. What the Lord says he's going to do, he will do. And when he says something will happen, it will happen. Nothing is going to stop the plans of God, my brothers and sisters. He is high and he is lifted up. The train of his robe fills the temple. What I mean is when you would conquer another, another army or another civilization, you would attach some of his garment onto yours, and it would get longer and longer. Well, God's, in hyperbolic language here, fills the temple. There is none who can stop our God. His train fills the temple. He's holy. And because of this, Nahum tells them, keep your feasts. Like, fear the Lord, and he is for you. He is jealous. Worship him. Cling to his promises. All these feasts and these vows, they pointed God's people to the plan of salvation. They pointed God's people to the one who would come to crush the serpent. And brothers and sisters, you know, God has given us, the church, with the means of grace to keep us, the preaching of his word, to grow us in in grace, to keep us in his word and to keep us together and keep us to the end. So he's given his people in the past many things to cling to his promises as they await the Messiah. And he's given us, the church, the means of grace to keep us as we await Christ's return. These promises where he has come, where he promises to make right all things that are wrong, where he promises to judge evil where he promises that we will be glorified and we will be with him forever. He has given us all these things for us to cling to one another, to cling to this body of Christ, to participate in the supper, to watch sinners repent and be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and to cry together, to weep together, to celebrate together, to keep each other from sin, to push each other to better things, to good things. And I don't think we should take that for granted. He said the Messiah would crush the serpent. He did that. And that will finally be completed when Christ returns for the last time. He's told us to preach, to baptize, to eat the supper together. And let us, ne- let us not neglect these things. And with the proper understanding interpretations, we're not to, what I just did, take everything that's promised to Israel, everything that God commands, and just lay it over in this age. We don't just draw straight lines from everything that is promised just straight to this age. And that's what I mean by drawing straight lines. For instance, the holy wars in the Old Testament. For instance, 
him destroying nations with other nations. They're not to be applied just directly to the body of Christ in this present age. We are commanded, we are not commanded to destroy other nations who are idolatrous. And those judgments of God using Israel or other nations to bring his temporary wrath are not his final judgments. They too are temporary. And they actually display God's mercy in that he didn't destroy everything all of a sudden because he should, because he's good. But he was patient and he was merciful and he was working in history to accomplish redemption. So in reality, we may never feel good, if you will, about these things, about the judgments of God. We may never feel good about the way that God has worked in ancient history because we're so frail and we will never understand his ways fully. God is complex and this stuff is above our pay grade. It's above our understanding. But God is good, and we trust that as we seek for understanding and we seek to understand, that we trust him, not our feelings. And for further reason that we don't draw straight lines from these things that we're reading all the way to our age. Excuse me. Yeah, so for further, other, for further reason, we do not draw straight lines of application is because some promises were pointed, some promises pointed to a greater fulfillment of God's church of all time. Gosh, I'm sorry, guys. Further reason we do not draw straight lines of application is because some promises were only for Israel in a particular time of history. Some promises were both to Israel and then pointed to a greater fulfillment in the Messiah and then in the last coming of Christ. So, for example, the sacrificial system has found its fulfillment in Christ. But others, like the destruction of Israel's enemies that we have been viewing the last two weeks, it points to, to Christ's triumph over sin and over death and over Satan. But it also is just a shadow of when he comes to finally judge and make all things right completely. Got that out. So... <laughs> And right now, the kingdom of God is not identified with any nation or any ethnic group or any people group. For now, it's a kingdom of grace, bringing the forgiveness of sins. Soon it will be a kingdom of glory, bringing final justice, righteousness, and peace to the earth. And this hope of Jesus' return includes the resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting, which leads us to the second meditation. The second coming, two kingdoms, and how we live. The second coming, two kingdoms, and how we live. So this is not a reflection of eschatology proper, just so you know. But Jesus came the first time in humility and in grace, and he will return the second time, final time, in glory and in power. You know, earlier in our service, we confessed the Nicene Creed, and we confessed that Jesus will come again to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And that is our hope. He is coming to do that. We await that return where he does that. See, we're presently living in this already but not yet state. He's made all things new in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. He has done that. But he's also making all things new. And one day things will finally and forever, completely forever be made new at Christ's return. 
So the old has not passed completely. Although the end is sure. And so because Christ rose from the dead and he's sitting beside the Father in power, he's preparing his bride for his return. But for now, the new creation in Christ Jesus is of faith. And it's planted in the midst of this common kingdom. We're a part of a kingdom that is not of sight, but is of faith. And it's planted in this common kingdom. The bodies that we have, these bodies of death, the redeemed person, we, the redeemed person, are still in these bodies of death. So the redeemed part of us is still living in the midst of this body of death. And they belong to a creation that's groaning for something greater. And with all of that in mind, in this present age, as a part of Christ's kingdom, we do not overthrow kingdoms of this age. We do not execute God's wrath. We are not correcting all the wrong. But in the the authority and power of Christ, which is all power and authority, we have been commissioned to herald the gospel to herald the gospel of peace and see people repent and believe. The peace which we bring to this world, not world peace. The peace we establish as his church is the peace of Christ Jesus. Peace with God. It's the message of forgiveness and reconciliation in Christ Jesus. So do we want to see our culture change? Of course. Do we want to see it approve? Absolutely. It's just that God has not promised that he's going to do that in this life. He has actually grown his church the most in the midst of suffering, in the midst of horrible persecutions, in the midst of horrible cultures. Christ is the one who will finally and rightly fix the culture when he comes at last to bring glory to earth. So God's wrath, which is being stored up for the final and eternal judgment, and the punishment for those who break his law, it will be poured out at Christ's return. It's not for us to bring this vengeance. God will avenge. He will repay. He will give the righteous what they deserve and the evildoers what they deserve. And if he has said this, just like we considered a second ago, he will do it. He will do it. He will receive, we will receive glorified bodies and eternal life with God because of the righteousness of another, not our own. So when that day comes, we have no reason to fear because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. But for now, we're new creations in these old dead bodies. And so for now, we're part of a redeemed kingdom of faith in the midst of this old creation. We fight sin. We pursue good. We enjoy life. We preach the gospel. But man, is anyone tired of sin? Is anyone tired of the effects that sin has on you? Is any of you tired of the desires that you have for things that you know are bad and are not going to be good? Are you tired of the fact that you love things that are still bad? Are you tired of wrestling and and struggling against habitual sins. Is anybody tired of having hate in your heart for no reason but selfishness? Is anyone tired of the aches and that pains that come with getting older? Would anyone actually admit to being tired of suicidal thoughts? 
tired of mental and emotional issues? Tired of feeling bad things? Is anyone tired of being haunted by the thought of eternity? Is anyone tired of suffering? Is any of you tired of the feelings that don't match what you believe and that you know to be true? Are you tired of watching the wicked in this world prosper? Because we have so much hope in this life and all our dreams and all our desires are so earthly, we almost don't want eternity to happen. We're tired of all that, and yet we have all this hope in this life to prove all the points that we're sinners. I want to read a couple verses for you. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throng saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither thou, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So though the darkness is overwhelming, and the brightest light grows dim, though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men, though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place, we will all be humbled when we see your face. In the demons we've been fighting, those without and those within will be under our feet to never rise again. And all our sins will be behind us through the blood of Christ erased and we'll taste your kindness when we see your face. All the waiting will be over. Every sorrow will be healed. All the dreams that seed could never be will all be real. And you'll gather us together in your arms of endless grace as your bride forever when we see your face. We will see and we will know like we've never known before. We will be found. We will be home. And we will be yours forevermore. And you'll gather us together in your arms of endless grace as your bride forever when we see your face. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it probably baffles all of us that you use fickle and frail men, such as myself, to preach your gospel. But you use words to strengthen us, to encourage us. And so, like every week, we show up to keep preaching Christ keep holding him out to sinners. We need him. So, Father, we praise you because you've given us Christ, that you have given us faith to trust in him. You're no longer our judge, but you are the all-powerful God who is jealous for us, not because of anything we've done, but because of your mercy. And so, Father, as we go to the table,
Help us to believe that. In Jesus' name, amen.